Isn't that awesome? John, Don, thank you guys for sharing that. And Hope is here, actually. We have Hope here in, in this, actually, not just by video. So um, as we start into this, uh, this season, I had uh, the Denton share their story. As we'll, we're gonna, I'll explain some context for what we're going to walk through in this month. It's interesting when the calendar lines out kind of the way it is where you have Thanksgiving and then the first week of Advent falls like on the same weekend. So it's kind of strange of saying Happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas all at the same time. But as we, as we transition into, into December, and now this actually Sunday being the, the first Sunday of Advent, I want to kind of give, before we jump into our, our, our message this morning, we'll be in First Peter and talk about the concept of hope. I want to give you a broader context for what we're going to walk through in the month of December and the importance of, of embracing what God is saying to us. So we are in the Advent season. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard the term Advent. Advent means the arrival or the coming of Jesus. It's, it's what we celebrate. And, and with that, we have the, the first Advent was 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. We call it Christmas. Uh, there will be a second Advent. That's when he returns someday. Now, we, we live in between two Advents, the first one and the second one. That's where we live right now. We look back at the original one, but we also look forward to the future one of when his, he'll, he'll return but what I wanted to embrace as we walk through this month is that the Advent season is celebrated differently through different traditions within the church. Um, in some more maybe traditional or formal or liturgical churches, we would have like a wreath up here with candles around. And each week we would light a candle that symbolizes each of the themes of, of Advent. So hope, peace, joy, love throughout each week. Um, that's one way you can do it. But one of the things that I've always been impressed with about what Jesus did when he came was it wasn't that he came just for a group of people and he stopped there. In everything that God does in our life, it, all, it has to do with us, but it has to do with other people beyond us. And the same thing is true when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. With the Bible, we use this term, we call it the incarnation. It's God taking on human flesh. And John talks about that in and, and different translations and also the Bible in Matthew references Jesus' name as Emmanuel, means God with us, uh, and the concept of God taking on human flesh. In fact, in one translation, which is the message, Eugene Peterson translates this, and he says that he said that basically Jesus became human and he moved into the neighborhood. I love that phrase because it, it's, it takes on reality for you and I that the God of the universe actually came to be one of us, to dwell with us. And because of that, understanding that's the incarnation, that Jesus did that for us, not only because he loves us, but because he loves the world. And now that we live in this reality between two advents, the first one and then looking forward to the second one, the tangible presence of God on the planet is what? The church. And the church is not the building or a service. The church is people. And so when you and I say yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in us, and therefore what people understand about who Jesus is comes through the church, comes through the tangible reality of people like you and me who demonstrate who Jesus is to other people. So this month what we want to embrace is an incarnational advent. Jesus was incarnated, became human, so that we could understand what God was like. He is the definition of God in human flesh. And now as we live between two advents, guess what we get to do? We get to be through the power of the Holy Spirit, the tangible presence of God on the planet, which means, in a sense, you and I live out the principle of incarnation in our lives. That not only do we get to experience hope because what God has done, which we'll talk about this morning, but we also get to infuse hope into the lives of other people because what Jesus has done in us. So understanding that Christmas is important for us to reflect 
on the Advent season, on the themes, but it's not just about reflection. It's actually about action and living it out. So if you have your bulletins, just real quick, once you grab, there's an insert in there on the top of it. Well, actually, on both sides, it says hope. And you're going to get one of these every week when you come in each of the Sundays of December. And what it'll have is it has the passage that I'm going to speak on this morning. And it has some reflection questions that you can think on during the week. And then as well, there's, there's some action items. Some ways that you can actually live out the theme of hope this week. Now, there's kind of some starter ideas there. You don't have to be narrowed just to those, but there's just some ones to get you thinking. I had a conversation with someone in between services about how he can display hope in his life. But thinking through not only what you and I experience in Jesus bringing hope to our lives, but now thinking through how this week do I tangibly and practically live this out in a way so that somebody else experiences just a glimpse or a taste of the kind of hope that I've experienced in my life. So the, the, as John mentioned, we're going to be in, we'll have our candlelight service on the 23rd, that Monday night. But ultimately, all of this kind of season is going to culminate on the 29th, which is the last Sunday of December, when we're actually going to have what we're going to call a Advent celebration. It's going to be one service at 10 a.m., and it's going to be like a big family gathering. Actually, at about 9 o'clock, we're going to start with a pancake breakfast. So we're going to get your kids hopped up on sugar and syrup and all kind of great stuff. It's Pajama Sunday, which means kids of all ages can come to church in their PJs. Totally appropriate, as long as you're well covered, okay? But, and also, we're going to just have an opportunity to hear from each other what God has done through this month. Hearing what you've experienced as you try to live out hope and peace and joy and love in your life. So it's going to be opportunity for testimonies once again with that, just again, celebrating what God is doing. So it's a challenge. So we all have homework this month. It's to actually live out what God is doing in our lives. And on top of that, what will be fun is we also do worship by request, which puts the worship team on the spot. You set the worship list for the day. So you can tell all the songs that are most difficult that you've always wanted to hear. You can throw that on the worship team. It's just a fun family gathering to celebrate all that God is doing in this month. So it's coming up on the 29th. You'll hear more about it. So this morning, we want to talk about this concept of hope. As I mentioned we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me read verses 3 and 4. And we'll talk about what that means for us, not only receiving it from Jesus, but also embodying it and displaying it in our lives. So Peter writes this in verse 3 of, of chapter 1. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. I just want to look at those two verses this morning and talk about this concept of hope, which in its practical sense is basically it's this understanding or this mindset that you and I have that ultimately the future can be better than the present or the past. That's something that resonates in our hearts. Because of who Jesus is, there is the potential, and not just that it might happen, but there is a reality that our future is going to be better than our past, that our future will be better than today. That's the sense of hope that we have. And understanding that this morning, just want to look at this passage and begin with, how do you and I embrace this reality of hope that comes through Jesus in our lives? When Jesus came at Christmas time, when he was born, what did that mean for you and I? In, in, the, in the really, in the most tangible way. And Peter writes about that, that in these few verses. So the first part in verse, uh, verse 3 tells us about embracing hope that you and I need to remember that our sin doesn't have to be the end. That ultimately when you and I fail, and all of us do because all of us are sinners, that that is not the end for you and I. 
So Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy. I love that phrase. What Peter's describing for you and I is not only the action that God takes towards humanity in showing us mercy, in not giving us the ultimate punishment that we deserve, but what he's saying is that the, actually the disposition, the default of God is mercy. That's part of his nature. That's who he is. In his great mercy, in his mercy that goes way beyond our mercy, way beyond our understanding, that's the way God functions. And so the first thing that you and I need to understand is that experiencing true hope means that you and I come to the, the understanding in our lives that when we fail, and we will fail, and we will fail miserably, it's not the end for us. Because God, in his great mercy for you and I, extends us forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross, which means that sin is not the end. Now, that's for some of us, you're like, oh, I get that. And some of you think, oh, wait, careful. If you say that, then you're going to give people license to sin. No, I'm not. Because what mercy allows you and I to do is not no longer to live in sin, but to live free from sin, the life that God intended us to live. But in that context of mercy, you and I have to understand that is God's nature. And many of us, even though we would say God is merciful, we live as though God is not merciful. We live as though he's this grumpy old guy who's really ticked off and he's looking for you and I to mess up so he can crush us. Seriously, a lot of us have that mindset that somehow God is just constantly ticked off at us. I mean, we wake up in the morning and we breathe our first breath of the day and somehow God's mad at us for something we've done, something we've dreamt, something we've thought. I don't know what it is. That's, it pervades our culture. That's the, usually most people, when you talk about Jesus, they have one idea. But when you say God, they think of judgment and punishment and anger and all those kinds of things. They usually don't think of mercy. But that's what Peter's saying. Listen, the disposition of God towards humanity is merciful in his great mercy. It's kind of like the picture. Anybody seen the Home Alone, the first Home Alone? I think they're up to like Home Alone 15 now. I lost, Macaulay Culkin is like now a senior citizen in the movies. I don't know. But remember the first one, the first one that, that came out, the, the, the whole theme, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll give it away for you. He gets home, left home alone, his family goes off on vacation, he has a much funner Christmas time than he would if he went with them. That's basically it, you don't have to see it now. But, so anyway, if you watch the movie, there's this older man in the movie that every once in a while has these little encounters with Kevin, the main character. And he's this old man that lives on the street, and he's kind of creepy looking, and he's kind of scary, and he looks kind of gruff. And every time Kevin sees him, he tries to run the other way because he's heard stories about how this guy's probably like some mass murderer. And so he's, he's afraid of him. And so there's a couple times, he, once he sees him in the, on the street, and he runs the other way. He runs into him in a store, and he runs home to get away. And then eventually, he's, he comes into this church, and he's sitting in the church, and he sees the old man get up and start coming over towards him. And he can't run. He can't hide, and so the old man sits down, and he realizes this old man's not scary. He's not angry. He's not ticked off. He's actually a very kind old man who's lived a life that's been broken by his relationships and his own family. And, and it's this whole switch for Kevin to see, okay, wait, this guy, I thought he was this, but he's really this. Now, on a much grander scale, I think that you and I live this way, and sometimes we portray God in this way to our culture that God is just angry and ticked off and judgmental and just he, he desires to crush humanity, which is so a f the furthest thing from the truth of who God is. And that means for you and I as individuals and for the world that we live in, when somebody sins, the good news is it's not the end. 
But before Jesus gave his life on the cross, if, we had, if Jesus didn't come at Christmas and then die on the cross and rise from the dead, then there, it would be the end. Because the moment you and I failed, whether big or small, we would be done. We would be punished. We would be sentenced. We would, it would, be, we would be over. It would be done. We would lose our lives because that's what's demanded of our sin. But we don't because God in his great mercy loves humanity enough that says, I'm not going to allow their sin to be the end. That's why Jesus came. So the first way that you and I experience hope is that when we fail, forgiveness is available through the cross. Therefore, our sin is not the end. It's God's opportunity to extend his mercy and his forgiveness to you and I. Second thing, look at on the second part of verse 3. Also remember, your past doesn't have to define your future. So Peter goes on and he says, and he has given us new birth. Very important phrase. New birth means reborn. It means a new creation. It means brand new. And why is that so important? The reason that you and I can have hope is that God, through Jesus, has allowed, through the cross, through his death and his resurrection, and coming and becoming a human being, this whole process has allowed for you and I to realize that human beings can be changed. Hear what I'm saying, because many of us are convinced that's not true. See, what you and I, when we read through the scriptures sometimes and we hear about a new creation or a new life or a new birth, what we default to is a remodel, not new. We think of somehow, yeah, you know, I know God does some great things, but you know, I'm always going to be who I was and that's just a part of who I am. It's kind of, it's just my lot in life and I'm never going to change, but you know, I know God can change things and he can modify them and he can kind of make my behavior a little bit better. But deep down inside, I'm still the same person I'm always going to be. And he just kind of, it's almost like he's adding on a wing to my life to make me feel a little bit better. That's what we view what's going on. And that's not what those words mean. Those words mean literally brand new from the ground up, from the inside out. It's not some modification that God works out on us. And the reason that you and I can have hope in that is because every human being, no matter how horrible or how lost or how broken we are, can always be changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. We have that hope. Why? Because we've been given a new birth. It's a new life. I have a close friend who's a general contractor, and he's very gifted in what he does. And we've had a lot of discussions about construction. He's helped with church things in the past. And so he, he's, he, I've been amazed. Everything that he makes, I, I, if I ever build a house someday, I want him to build it. Because he's amazing. But we, were having, we have different discussions, especially when it comes to when we had an older church building in Oregon, about what can we do to fix it. And he said, you know, listen, he goes, my, my take on things, he said, I always like new construction. I said, well, why? I said, we have this structure. I mean, we could just, you know, add to it and change it. And he goes, no. He goes, because he goes, every time you remodel something, you're always limited by what's present. You always have to take into account what's already there. And you have to work your, kind of your plan around that and make it work. And you're still always dealing with the old. You're not dealing with the brand new. So when we were talking about church stuff and about future, he wanted just to demolish the entire church building and start from the ground up. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty aggressive. He said, but that's the only way you know it's going to be brand new. It's the only way you know it's going to actually work the way it's supposed to. And God's the same way. God is not in the business of remodeling humanity. He's in the process of transforming our lives so that we actually are brand new. For some of us, we struggle with that. We default to that thinking, no, it's just going to be this is the way it is. Or we look at other people and we're convinced they can never change. See, when you and I say that, we aren't saying that about that person. We're actually saying that against God. You can't change them. 
Jesus can do anything he wants to do because he, he came, he was born, he died, and he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death, and there's nothing bigger than those two things in our lives. If he can overcome those, there is not one human being that could ever walk the planet that he can't transform and change. That gives us hope. It gives you hope for the person sitting next to you who's so horrible this morning, right? They'll actually be changed someday. Don't look at them. It'll make them nervous. Are you guys awake this morning? You're tracking with me? I know it's a little warm in here. Because, by the way, I'm just digging the fact that we're back in California after seven years in Oregon. I can wear flip-flops on December 1st. Is that like the coolest thing? It was 72 degrees yesterday when I was putting up my Christmas lights. I was like, thank you, Jesus. Sorry, little side note. Let's move on. Just a little excited about the weather. That doesn't take much. So understanding and remembering that our future ultimately is not defined or limited by our past. Third thing, going on in verse 3. Embracing hope also means remembering death isn't the end but the beginning. So Peter goes on and he says, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. So he says new birth, and he says a living hope. A hope that's based on someone who is alive, not dead. That means that you and I understand that death is not the end because we have a hope that is alive, and that hope is in Jesus. And he defeated death, and he rose from the the grave because that means you and I have to understand death is not the end. Now, death is something that we all think about, even though you and I probably don't get up every day and think about how many days we have to live left. We don't think about death constantly, but there is that little like clock in our heads that knows someday, someday that we're going to die. And that, that plays with us because it, it controls our decisions each day and it controls our long-term decisions and it influences what we do and what we don't do in our lives because we know death is this reality. But if we understand what Peter's saying here and what Jesus said is true about our life is that we have a living hope. That means that if our hope is alive, that death can't control that. Death can't limit that. That death is not the end for you and I. But for all of humanity, death is the greatest end. It is the dead end. It's the thing that we don't get beyond. It's like nobody cheats death. Everybody's going to die sooner or later. But Jesus has defeated death. He's gone beyond death. Which means that ultimately, what Paul said was true, that if we die and you follow Jesus, when you die, it's actually gain. I don't have to be afraid of death because it doesn't end there. It keeps on going because Jesus is alive. And he's called you and I to follow him throughout this life. And just imagine, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but just, just for a moment, just imagine what would it be like if you, didn't, you weren't afraid of dying? What would life be like? What if you didn't worry about death? What if you realized die was really gain? What if you realized that death was not the end, but it was actually the beginning? It actually moved us into eternity to be face-to-face with Jesus forever. What if that's the way you and I viewed death? It would change the way we live our life. Some of you might not even be sitting in this room anymore because there's things that you would do in following Jesus that you are afraid to do right now because death is the ultimate doom for you. But we're reminded, Peter says, no, you have a living hope. It's, he is alive, and because of that, death is not the end. Jesus calls us to follow him. And the longer you follow him, the more he will ask of you and the more he will ask you to sacrifice. And eventually you'll come to that moment where you realize, you know what, he's asking me to give my life. Ta-da, you've finally gotten there because that's what he's asked all along. Is that when we, give our, when we say, I'm following Jesus, or I'm making a commitment or a decision, ultimately he's asking for you and I to turn over the control to him of our lives. To follow him wherever he will lead. Why? Because there is no barrier, there is no limit, there is no dead end for Jesus. There isn't. 
He just keeps going on. He just keeps calling us to follow him beyond, beyond. And eventually he will call us to follow him beyond death into life forever with him. There's a Nissan Pathfinder commercial that's out right now. I don't know if you've seen it. This, by the way, this is not a plug for Nissan, okay? I don't get paid endorsements when I make advertisements up here. But so then this, this, this family's driving along in their Pathfinder, and they're out in, some, in a mountain. There's some snow, and they drive up, and they're wanting to go to Glacier Point. And so they get to what is, looks like a dead end. It's, it's, a, it's a sign that says road closed, and they're like, oh, we really wanted to go. Then there's this old mountain man standing on the side of the road. And so the dad gets out and goes over, and he says to the man, he goes, Glacier Point, like, can you get us there? And he says, if you've seen the commercial, kind of like Jesus said, he says, follow me, if you haven't seen it. And so they follow him. And of course, because they're in their nice new 2014, you know, Nissan Pathfinder, they can go wherever he goes. So they're on, you know, on the mountain, they're going through snow, and he's on a sled, and he's, you know, he's showing them. They get to these different landmarks, and every time they ask him to take him to another one, he says, follow me, follow me. And like the last one, he literally like goes airborne, says, follow me. You know, then like they get in their Pathfinder, and they're driving along. And I love the commercial because there's no limit. There's, there, it just keeps on going. Wherever he's going to go, they're going to follow because they can do that. Now, understand, way beyond a Nissan Pathfinder is the same thing that Jesus says to you and I. You will get you to points in your life where he's going to say, follow me. And you go, oh, no, no, I can't. I can't do that. Don't you know I'm human? Don't you know that if I do that, I actually might have to lose my life? Jesus always knows. He knows what he's calling us to. And that's when you read through the books of Scripture, the pages of Scripture, what do you end up finding? You end up finding a lot of people that at the end of their life, they didn't die a nice, natural, easy death where they fell asleep and went to be with Jesus. They actually gave their life to follow him. But they did it with joy. And they did it with passion. And they did it with risk and with courage. Why? Because death wasn't the end. It was simply the beginning for them. Which leads to the fourth thing in verse 4 is that to embrace hope, you and I also need to remember that the next life can be better than this one. So Peter goes on, he says, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. It's that thing that Paul talked about. It's that gain, that when we die, it's actually better. To understand that that reality for you and I, just to think about this, just for a moment to think about that the life that I live now pales in comparison to the life that I'll live in eternity, that it actually will be better. Now, depending on where you're coming from, some of you think, yeah, that's a given. Life has been very difficult. It's been rough. I can't wait to go see Jesus someday. Others, you know, we kind of like set up camp here. Life's pretty good. I'm working a good job. I got a nice house. I live in Simi Valley, the most safe and comfortable city in all the world. Life is good. Why would I want to go anywhere else? And so we're thinking, how can it really even be better than this? But what Peter's trying to communicate to you and I is that there's something that is secure in the future for us that is far better than anything you and I could ever dream up or architect or anything we could ever come up with. Nothing compares to the inheritance that we're going to have in being face-to-face with Jesus forever. Nothing comes close. That gives you and I hope. Because what it does to you and I is that when we go through difficult times in life, we are reminded that what comes next is greater than what we're living in right now. See, the reality for you and I is that if you follow Jesus, this is the only hell you're ever going to experience. This is as bad as it's going to get for any of us. This life, the great tragedy, is for someone who chooses not to give their life to Jesus. This is as good as it will ever get. 
that's sad. That's, there's no hope in that. That's why we have this living hope. We have this inheritance. That's why we're living out incarnational Advent because we're not the ones that have the quarter on the market of hope. Hope is given to us so we can give it away. But just think about what would that look like again in our lives if we really thought that we had a great inheritance waiting for us, we had nothing to lose, that we could actually anticipate the day that we would die because we knew what it meant in eternity for us. I might have shared this story before, but maybe your household was similar to mine growing up in, in the way that you would have, we would have family dinners together. I have three older sisters. And so my mom, I've, I've joked with her about this. And, you know, for years, she's like been like, she's a good cook, but she likes to cook really healthy. And I've been rebelling since I was a child against that. And so she just, you know, she really cared about her health. And so she always made really healthy stuff. So that means we ate, ate like lots of vegetables and all that stuff that you don't like to eat. And I remember, you know, we, we would have dinner, and we'd all sit down together, and she would make some a great, natural, healthy food and tell us how great it was. And, and uh, even, like, she'd, like, make squash, and she'd sprinkle some cinnamon on it. She goes, hey, it tastes just like pumpkin pie. I'm like, no, Mom, it tastes like squash with cinnamon on it. That's what it tastes like. And so, you know, whatever meal would be. And, and so, I, you know, I kind of choked down my squash. And I was one of those kids, you know, that, you know, sometimes you just didn't, you sat there, and it's like hoping it would disappear off the plate. Anybody ever had the timer set on you to finish your meal? I had that one. I mean, I was like the last one at the table every night, like, oh, man, I got two minutes left. What am I going to do? But, you know, we'd have those meals. But then one of the things that my sisters and I would always wait for is you get to the end of the meal, you know, the, the plates are kind of being cleared off, and you're waiting for mom to say the phrase. And the phrase that you're longing for her to say is, keep your spoons. Because you, you knew if she said, keep your spoons, that dessert was coming. Now, I don't know what it was about in our household, but my mom would do really, really very creative and healthy things, but dessert wasn't one of them. So we got all kind of great dessert when we'd have dessert. And so we were just hoping. And if she said that, it was like, oh, choking down that squash was worth it. Because now I get ice cream or cookies or brownies or whatever's coming my way. And I always keep that in the back of my mind. I look at what's on my plate. I'm thinking, I don't want that squash. I don't want those vegetables. But there might be dessert at the end. And so I can eat it. Because I knew if I didn't eat the squash, I'm not getting any dessert. In our lives, what God says to you and I is keep your spoons because the, yet, the best is yet to come. And if you and I live that way, if we believe that every single day that we got up, if death comes to our doorstep today, we're okay with it. Because we know the best is yet to come. Can you imagine what our lives would look like? Not that you and I have a death wish, we're not going to go out and run in front of a train today, but knowing that ultimately that if death does come my way sooner than I want it to, which is always sooner than most of us want it to, by the way, that we're okay because we realize there's inheritance waiting for me on the other side that God has secured for me that is better than what I'm living today. So that's the hope that you and I get to experience. But as we talked about, we want this to not only be hope that we receive, but hope that we give away. So how do we not only embrace hope, how do we embody it in our lives so that we impact people around us with the same kind of hope that we've experienced? Let me just touch on three things. The first thing is this, is to live mercifully. If we're going to embody hope, you and I need to live as Jesus lived. We need to have the same heart as the Father has for, for people, and that is mercy. Jesus said in Luke six thirty six, he said, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Again, God's disposition towards humanity is what? Mercy. His default is mercy. He wants to be merciful. So, if we say we follow Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in us. That means God, the Spirit of God lives in us. That means we exude 
the incarnation of hope in people's lives, so we demonstrate that, which means we are merciful people. That's hard sometimes. But can you imagine if we decided to be that way, to live with mercy as our default, not judgment, not punishment, but to be merciful, which means I choose not to give somebody what they actually deserve, the judgment that they deserve because of the decision they made in their life. That's easy when it's generic, but when it gets really specific and someone has done something against you and offended you, the last thing that you want to offer them is mercy. But mercy is the first thing that God offers us through Jesus' death on the cross. We all deserve death. We all deserve punishment. But we don't get that because of what Jesus did on the cross. God, in in his great mercy, gives us his grace, which is what we really don't deserve, while not giving us punishment, which is what we do deserve. Just think about if you were able to live that out in your life. Think of the people who need mercy that you have a problem with in your life. That have offended you, that have hurt you, have wounded you. And you don't want to give them mercy. In fact, you would would love for God to send a lightning bolt from heaven to strike them dead. Your enemies, people that you don't like. But if you and I are going to truly live out what Jesus has brought to our lives in hope, then we need to embrace this concept of mercy. See, you and I don't understand the power of mercy. See, because we only think of it in terms of how we receive mercy, but we have a disconnect when it comes to extending mercy to other people. That's why Jesus told a parable about the unmerciful servant who was forgiven a huge debt and then couldn't forgive a very small debt, because that's human nature. But see, you you and I don't understand the power that we have to either liberate or incarcerate somebody in their life according to the way we treat them, whether we allow them to have experienced mercy or we pass judgment on them. So you might not think this, but when somebody does something against you, and even if you think, oh, they don't even think about me, they don't care about me, but you live in unforgiveness towards them and you don't want to extend mercy to them, then what you've done is that you have pigeonholed them in their life to only be their worst action that they've ever taken towards you, their worst sin has become the defining moment for their life, and that's the only way you see them. You've just doomed them for that identity in your eyes for the rest of their life because you can't extend mercy. So where we say, oh God, it's wonderful that my past does not determine my future, that I am forgiven, that sin is not the end, that death is not the end, but then we look at our brother or our sister and we don't extend them that same mercy. There are people in your life, whether you know it or not, you have by your decision not to extend mercy, you have incarcerated them. You have held them because of your unforgiveness. And in that, they have only one identity in your eyes. And that's guilty. But when God looks at them, he sees them differently, just like when God looks at you. What if you and I realized that was true and we became merciful so that we extended forgiveness far more easily than we do? It's not to cheapen forgiveness and mercy, but it's to understand that if God is going to treat us this way, then we have to treat other people the same way. And there are some people in your life that this Christmas season, God may be calling you to liberate, to actually forgive, to no longer identify them with the greatest point of their failure in life, and to set them free so that no longer do you look at them as someone who's failed or someone who causes you pain, but someone who's forgiven. And you've allowed them to move on so that you can move on too. It's that same verse that keeps coming out of Romans 12 that I've mentioned so many times that just Paul says, sheesh, live at peace with people as much as it depends on you. That's your responsibility to make it right. 
And some of the, the most merciful things you and I can do is just extend forgiveness to people. There's people that have done things to you or you are offended by that maybe you've carried for years. And God's saying it's time to liberate them. It's time to let them go. It's time for you no longer to be offended by them. It's time you extend forgiveness as I have forgiven you, so forgive others. If you and I were to do that, that might be the greatest gift that you've ever given or received at Christmas. Because you move through this season and you're free from the pain of your past and you've freed somebody to move forward in their own life. Second thing that you and I need to learn to do is to also live compassionately. So mercy leads to the tangible reality. If mercy is literally not holding someone's sin against them and not punishing them or not holding them somehow accountable for their failure because God does that. He's the ultimate judge. But compassion is that extension where you find somebody in your life who you think has come to what they perceive is the end. They have come to an event or a tragedy, or a painful experience in their life that you can tell in your relationship with them they cannot see beyond it. This is the end for them. And they can't seem to live beyond something that's happened. The capacity to live compassionately is to find somebody in that broken state and actually show them love and compassion. To help them to see through your own experience or the experience of others that that is not the end. Their circumstance does not control them. That because what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection, death is not the end, sin is not the end. That means that there's nothing that's the end. God can always redeem things. God can always reconcile things. It's about three years ago or so, I, I was sitting across the table from a woman named Lisa who wasn't even a part of our church. Her husband, Steve, had been a part of our church for a number of years. But about three days earlier, he had gone out to the Oregon coast, and he was doing one of his favorite things. He was kite surfing. And he had just gotten all his gear rigged up, and he was just getting into the water, and he got up on the board for his first ride of the day, and he dropped dead from a heart attack. Out of the blue. No history, no sign, just boom, dead on the spot. Literally instantly died. So she's sitting there across the table from me. She's sobbing, and her kids, they're broken. And the great tragedy is she's sitting across the table from me is she had never come to our church because she had no category for God. Very intelligent woman, very successful businesswoman. She is running a multi-million dollar company. Her husband had come to church and she said, yeah, that's his thing. I really love him, but that's a part of his life that I'm not going to be a part of because really I don't see the need for God in my life. That was her mentality. That's what she lived out. So she's sitting across the table from me. She's just broken. She has no answers for what's gone on. She doesn't know what, what's happened. So we're talking through the memorial service. And, and, and then I, I, we, as a church, we really embraced her and anything we could do and helping her walk through this time. And it was difficult. And the memorial came and she was appreciative of what the church was doing. And about two weeks after the memorial, she comes to church. I was floored. She walks in on a Sunday morning and everybody who knows her like, oh my goodness. This is huge for her to actually set foot on a Sunday morning in the church. And then the next week she came back, and then the next week out of that, six weeks in a row she shows, shows up to church. Now, just so you know, I've been a pastor long enough. I see that happen quite a bit when somebody dies, is that there's this sense of, okay, God gets your attention. But you know what? The tragedy for most people is they come to church for about two months, three months, maybe six months. But they, what they're doing is they're doing it out of some connection to their lost loved one, and they never find Jesus. It's tragic. But it's the doorway that God opens for that to happen. So the good news is so she keeps coming. Her daughter's a part of our church too. So she's praying for her. And so we're praying for her that she'd come to know Jesus. We're trying to love her. And so 
the seventh or eighth week of her coming in a row happens to be Easter. So we have one service. We were doing one service in a gym, and so we could get everybody in one service. And so we have the gyms packed. There are seats on the floor. We're using all the bleachers. And so at the end of the, the, my message, I, I gave a very practical and specific invitation for people to surrender their life to Jesus. And so we had, we had prayer teams set up on one side of the gym. And so there's a huge kind of aisleway between the chairs and the front of the bleachers where most of the people could kind of walk through. She's sitting way over here. And with everybody's eyes opened, this wasn't like everybody close your eyes. This was like, you need to respond. And if you want to make a decision to give your life to follow Jesus, then you need to get up from your seat and you need to walk over to a prayer team. She steps up and she starts walking across the gym. So half the people there, everyone in the bleachers can see this. It just so happened that her daughter was sitting on the other side of the gym. She jumped up because she saw her mom stand up, and the two of them started walking towards each other, and they met right in the center, right in front of a couple hundred people in the bleachers. They're both sobbing because she knows why her mom's standing up, and she walks her mom over to a prayer team, and she gives her life to Jesus. It's incredible. A year later, she got married again. Crazy stuff. She's following Jesus, this woman who said, I have no need for God. She's remarried and everything in her life that was broken. She still loves her husband that she lost, but you should see her today. She's a different person. She's different because she has hope because she realizes who Jesus is. And that all became a a reality because probably in the process, at least 50 people showed her compassion in her broken state where she thought, this is the end for me. There is nothing beyond this. I've lost the man of my dreams. I've lost the love of my life. And now she sees the bigger picture. And she knows that she'll see him again someday because she knows Jesus now. Where are those people in your life? I had a great conversation with a guy in between services who has a business and he sees people all the time. And he says, how do I show hope? I said, look for broken people. You're going to see them. They walk into your business every single day. Let God open your eyes to see that because someone needs to know. They might just be you taking somebody out for coffee or you spending a couple extra minutes just listening to someone's story to show them compassion, to let that be the doorway for God to show them hope. Keeping our eyes open. And then finally, final thing that you and I need to learn to do to embody hope is to live eternally. To live with this concept that life doesn't end in death because death is not the end. If we live that out, if we lived out this hope for the future that's greater than the life that we live, it's what Paul said in Colossians 1, 27. He says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the deposit that God has put in us for the future that guarantees that our hope is secure, that it's real. That we have a starting point, and that's when we're born. But when we make a commitment to follow Jesus, we don't have an ending point because death is not the end. So we live on eternally. Just because we die physically, that doesn't mean it's over. It continues on. And if we live with that reality every single day, it changes the way we live. It changes the way people understand our lives. Just for a moment, think about what life would be like if you weren't afraid to die. It would change everything. It would change the way we live our lives. I think, it was, I think it's George Whitfield who originally said this, but different people have quoted him over the years. But I, I think it's, just, it's, it's a crazy reality to think about this. If you and I really believe that God is in control, then you and I are immortal until God's done with us. 
I want you just to think about that for a moment. If God is truly sovereign, John said it in the video earlier when they lost faith, when, when she was, was born, stillborn. He said, he said, ultimately, we had to trust. Our faith had to be that God was in control. And what happened was what God wanted to happen. That's faith that's secure in the fact that God is in control. So if God's really in control and he really is sovereign and really believe that, then if I choose to follow him and every time he calls me to follow him to a more dangerous, risky, self-sacrificing life, guess what? If I die in the process, is he still in control? Yeah. Because if it's God being in control, then I'm immortal until he decides to take me home to be with him. That doesn't mean that I have a death wish and I go jump in front of a train. But that means that I choose to follow Jesus, not afraid that if I die in the process of following Jesus, guess what? He's still in control. Because ultimately, when you and I give our life to Jesus, nothing can touch us. Nothing can. You think, oh, the enemy took him. The enemy doesn't have the power to kill anybody, by the way. He doesn't. I've heard people say that far too many. The enemy, the enemy can't take a life. He can harass. He can confuse. He can make us think that we should end our lives. But he can't take somebody's life or soul because those belong to Jesus because of his death and resurrection. So anything that happens to us, if we lose our lives, it's God is in control. And they get to live that out. Just think about how our lives would change. Just think on, your, on a daily basis how many decisions you and I make based on fear based on safety, based on making sure that we don't die. How many things that we do in a day are controlled by that? And again, it's not to live recklessly, but it's to live without fear. I mentioned before, it's like when you get in a car. Every, like 99% of the things that you do in a car have to do with safety. Why? Because you don't want to die. Your airbags, your seatbelt, you know, the, the way the glass breaks so that you don't, it doesn't cut you. The way that there's crumples on the car, it's all to protect you. And sometimes that's, the, that's how we describe Christianity. It's let's get in the safe mobile and ride it all the way into eternity. And that's what our lives become about. But what if we actually live eternally? What if we do have an inheritance? What if we have that perspective? I'll tell you what. People around you are going to look at you and they're going to come to one of two conclusions. You either really know Jesus or you're actually crazy. One of the two. That you live this life that's not controlled by what if I die doing that? How can I prevent that from happening? Trusting God, living eternally. God is calling us as a church. This is not, by the way, as we walk through, this is not about Christmas. It's not about December. This is about the trajectory of our church. It's about moving away from it being about us to it being about Jesus and what he's doing in our community and doing in the world. It's turning us inside out. Christmas is about reflection. Christmas is about the things that we do. But it's also about embodying what Jesus came to do for humanity. We get to be a part of that. In a few moments, the worship team is going to join me again, and we're going to continue to worship as we head towards the conclusion of our service. But what we're going to do is we did here Tuesday night, if you were here for our Thanksgiving service, we're also going to have communion now at the beginning of the Christmas season. And in a few moments, when the worship team is up here and we're singing, you can go to any of the stations, the four stations around the sanctuary. You can serve yourself the, the elements, which is the blood of Jesus symbolized in the cup and the bread, which symbolizes his body broken for you and I. But as you and I do that, I want you to, to if you're new here and you've made a commitment to Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table and do it. You don't have to be a member of our church to, to be able to participate. But what I want us to, to be mindful of when we do that is realizing the elements that you and I will hold are symbols that say to you and I, 
there is no dead end with God. There isn't. Sin is not the dead end. Jesus took care of that on the cross. Death is not the dead end. Jesus took care of that in the resurrection. And those are the two biggest issues of all humanity. Those are not the end. So when you take those elements today, what I'd like you to do is just to reflect for a moment and think about what is the greatest dead end in your life? What is the greatest point of failure? I don't know what your week's been like. I don't know what you've gone through. But there may be something that you have reached in your life and you've said, this is it. I can't get beyond this. Maybe, maybe you're dealing with some habitual sin in your life and you've just been in a cycle over and over and over again. And in your mind, you have bought into this hopeless mentality that I can never get free from this. Jesus' death and resurrection says otherwise. And today Jesus can break the power of that in your life so that when you come to that moment, you will reflect and you realize this is not the end, but the beginning of God's mercy and forgiveness in my life. And whatever it is that you've experienced, you confess that to Jesus because he already knows. And then he gives you the ability to turn away and live differently. Why? Because we also have what? A new birth. You can be different because what Jesus can do in your life. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to come into our world, to become human, to live with us, to experience what it is to be a human being. Thank you for showing what it, us what God looks like in human flesh. And we thank you that not only did you do things for us, not only did you come to instill hope, and peace and joy and love in our lives, but you did it because you love the world around us that needs to experience the same thing. So Lord, I pray as we come to this opportunity to remember what you did on the cross for us, to reflect again of your sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize that whatever we've come to as far as our own failure, you have come by your disposition of mercy to extend forgiveness so that we can be liberated to free, live, freely live a different life. And just with your eyes closed, I want to, I felt this first service and I, I want to reiterate it again, this, this service. There are things that maybe you're dealing with in your life that you've come to the end. And the first one might, first category of people, you might be here today and you know that you've led, your life has led itself to a lot of dead ends and you felt like you can't get around them. And it's because you've never understood the grace of God through Jesus in your life, the mercy that God wants to extend to you, the forgiveness that he wants to bring to you. And that comes through simply saying, I want to make a decision to follow him with my life and no longer follow my way. And it's this decision that you turn away from the dead ends of your life, the points of failure in your life, and you turn from them, which is the Bible calls repentance, and you turn towards God to follow Jesus, which you experience forgiveness, and your life changes because now you have a true hope that's founded on something real. And if that's what you desire and you've never made that commitment in your life, you can do that today by simply talking to God right now. You can begin to pray to Jesus and tell him that you have decided you want to follow him in your life. And after the service is over, I'd love to be able to talk to you about that. But that's a decision you can make today. For others that you've known the Lord for many years, you've chosen to follow Jesus, but you keep coming back to the same dead end. You keep coming back to the same point of failure. And maybe a lot of the other areas of your life you've been able to get a handle on, but you've come to this one and it is your dead end. Today, I believe that Jesus wants to break you free from that dead end. He wants to set you free from that. And for some of you, it may be in the area of a substance that you've become addicted to. 
that you keep going back to and you get free from a little, for a little while but then you, you're back there before you know it and you're stuck again and there's seasons of freedom but ultimately it keeps pulling you back in today Jesus wants to set you free once and for all Heathers, I felt this first I feel it this one some of you are addicted to lust and pornography I don't know who that is I'm not pointing at anybody but I know if that's what you found yourself in Jesus' death is greater than the power that thing has over your life And he wants you to be free from it. And it starts today by you confessing that when you have those elements, that Jesus would bring forgiveness and freedom. And the process of you turning from that is you need to tell somebody, I'm struggling in this area. I need help in this area. I I want freedom. Because it starts with your responding to God's mercy. And it moves forward when you confess that to somebody else for their support and encouragement in your life. So, Lord Jesus, would you set us free? Would you help us to move beyond the dead ends through the power of what you've done on the cross and your resurrection? We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.